And welcome to Reliving My Youth. My name is Noel Fogelman. My guest this week is Brad Roberts. The baritone is the lead singer of the Crash Test Dummies. The Canadian band released their latest single, Sacred Alphabet, their first in almost a decade. Brad discusses why he finally decided to release new music now. We all know the band is best known internationally for their 1993 album, God Shuffled His Feet, and the single, Mm-mm-mm. In Canada, they're best known for the 1991 single, Superman Song. Brad talks about how Mm-mm-mm failed in Canada. The song reached number four in the U.S. Billboard Hot 100 charts and top eight different countries. Brad discusses which SNL alum love the band, like their favorite band pretty much of all time, and if Brad liked Weird Al parody of Mm-mm. Brad, really nice guy. I learned a lot about the band, and I hope you do as well. So, Brad, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me. I'll start off by how I discovered you guys, and it might be living in the States. It's not the traditional way with mm -mm song. It was the second single, Swimming in Your Ocean. Because I went, um, I went to school up in Buffalo. So besides having great Buffalo wings, the best thing about being in Buffalo was the beer and the Canadian music that you know came down across the border. So I would listen. I forgot what station it was, but they would play "Swimming in Your Ocean" a lot. Distractions like why does God cause things like tornadoes and train wrecks? Shots will bring it 
heard that song and i'm like oh wow it's the same band because obviously i knew but i was like on the fence with it it wasn't like i'm turning the song off it's terrible but it's like all right it's it's not bad but just hearing swimming your ocean like really reinforced that you guys are a great band oh thank you yeah not a problem i Um, can tell you an interesting story about that if you want oh absolutely um so you heard Swimming in Your Ocean coming off the Canadian airwaves, correct? And at yeah. the time, mm-mm-mm was the one you'd hear on the American airwaves. Right. So the reason for that is the following. When our record, God Shuffled His Feet, came out with mm-mm-mm on it, it went to radio and video and to newspapers, and our hometown printed an extremely negative review um much music in canada which is mtv in america didn't want to play it okay uh radio didn't want to play it basically we had had a hit with our first record which came before god shovel his feet in canada you know to the point where we got a grammy and we're four times platinum and the whole bit and um this was a clear case of canada eating its own as Mm -hmm. it were it's a phenomena um so we we were unceremoniously flushed down the industry toilet in Canada and the song went up and down the charts very quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, now in America, on the other hand, we hadn't had any mainstream success to begin with. Right. Um, and mm-hmm started to get people calling in to this one radio station in Atlanta saying, who's that guy with that voice? And, you know, and they then they started going out and buying the record in Atlanta. It became a little hit. And as soon as Clive Davis saw that, Clive Davis being the head of Arista Records, our re- American arm of our record company, he plugged us into the machine. Hmm. And he had his company work that single to death. Right. Um, so Canada, in the meantime, thought they had succeeded in shutting us down and we reappeared in on the international scene and um the record eventually became huge in europe and all over the world uh but um what happened was canada all of a sudden had wanted to play crash test dummies again because they felt like they weren't living up to the rest of the world yeah. and um when i say this of course i'm referring to the canadian music industry not to fans right of course um, but uh, so they begged our record company to release another single okay. so that they could play something else because they didn't want to play because they already put it up and down the charts. And so we released Swimming as your o- in Your Ocean as a second single, and it was only released in Canada, nowhere else. The video was made strictly for Canadians. I remember we had to um, shut down a tour in order to accomplish this for them. Um, so it was... Uh, it was a real joy when America picked up the record and <laughs> saved our careers. I got to tell you, and that's why it, the long and short of it is that's why you heard "Swimming in Your Ocean" coming from the Canadian airwaves, as opposed to mm-mm-mm. right. And which was funny because the Buffalo stations at that point were still playing mm-mm-mm, you know to death. 
So it was like, you know, coming from both sides, at least, you know, yeah. fans huh. you know, in that area were able to hear both that's, sides. That's kind of great, actually. I didn't know that. So, yeah, so I guess we'll stay, we'll stay with that album for now. Um, and that was produced by Talking Heads, Jerry Harrison. I think that was like one of his, like, what, first big albums. I think he just came off doing lives, like one of their early albums. So, well, I mean, I know he's went on to produce a ton of great stuff. So what was working with him like? Um, working with Jerry was very interesting. It's, uh, I have kind of a funny story about Jerry Harrison and how I came to want him as a producer. There's a song by Talking Heads. I forget what it's called now, but the first word in it is home. And it's a, the last song on, uh, I forget which record. This is terrible. But anyways, <laughs> um, it was just a hauntingly beautiful keyboard part. And I thought if Jerry Harrison can write that, then I want him on my team. And so uh, I got him on my team and we were sitting around talking and I told him about my experience with that song. And he said, oh, ha, it's funny you should say that because uh, that day David Byrne suggested that we all trade instruments and he played the keyboards on that one. <laughs> I was oh, like, funny. Yeah. Figures, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So... <laughs> Was he a fan of the first album of you guys? Did he give you... Like, oh, I don't think he'd ever heard it. Okay. <laughs> I don't think he'd ever heard it. I think he probably only heard our uh, demo. Oh, okay. So so he was like, he just went by name of the group only, right? That was a, a cool name, so he might as well go <laughs> produce you. <laughs> well, he went, by, he went by the demo, I think. And okay. also, he was probably looking for work. You know, like yeah, he, hadn't, right. he hadn't produced any huge records yeah. at that point. He produced numerous records, but they were mostly, you know, independent or less than successful on the mainstream for whatever right. reason. Yeah. So how did it feel for you guys for basically you springboarded his career? <laughs> if, you, if you think about it, I mean, you know, that album blew up, you know, and got the Grammy nomination and like he got a ton of work as a result of it. <laughs> yes, he did. And I'm happy for him. Right. Yeah. <laughs> So uh, with that album, I mean, I know um, Weird Al covered the song. So, I mean, like, was that more of, like, recognition besides a Grammy nomination? Which one did you kind of, like, prefer, the nomination or the parody? (laughs) Once there was this kid who took a trip to Singapore spray paint and when he finally came back he had cane marks all over his bottom he said that it was from when the warden whacked it so
this guy who made his wife so mad one night that she cut off his wiener and when he finally came to he found that Mr. Happy was missing he couldn't quite explain it it had always just been there I have to say that although I was honored to be nominated for a Grammy, that it was even more uh, of a milestone, shall we say, to yeah. have Weird Al parody us. I was very flattered. Um, Weird Al is a lovely guy. He uh, he comes to the artist before covering their song. Okay. He and he only does it if the artist is cool with it, which is something he doesn't have to do, by the way. Right. You right. can cover anybody's song. It doesn't matter. You know, there's yeah. no law against it. You just got to pay him. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, but he doesn't do that. And uh, then he cuts a deal with you, which is a very fair deal. He says, um, I'll rewrite the lyrics and take half the publishing. And you have written the music to begin with. So you take half the publishing. And um, he went on to release our single as his first single. Um, and made a video for it and everything. Had <laughs> me or him with a wig on. Like, right. <laughs> so hilarious. Yeah. So so then, yeah. So jumping around a little bit, and then you covered in your Crash Test Dude documentary, and then your album, you covered a bunch of interesting artists as well, and Tony Braxton and Kim Carnes and Britney Spears. So did you? I'm. I know people cover songs all the time. They never hear, you know, from the artists. Did you hear? Any feedback from any of them? No. Okay. No, zero. Okay. <laughs> zero feedback. The only feedback I've got is from fans who think it's a little crazy sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so were there other songs in the running besides like those few that made the album and the documentary? Um, no, those were it. Okay. Some total of what I had that I thought was worth keeping. Yeah. Yeah. How, how did you like take, because... I, I love listening to to that album. It's funny because also the bridges between the two songs, you know, your little like introductions and stuff like that are great. Did you take that on the road at all? Oh yeah, I mean that was that was from the road. Okay, I, okay. I thought maybe that was one thing you just shot. Okay, I wasn't sure that you actually took that whole thing on the road like that. Okay, uh, so I'm so disappointed I missed that. That was really, that's really funny and it was it was really good. So anyone who hasn't heard Crash Test, do check it out. I'm going to jump around a little bit. I apologize. Um, the, the fourth album uh, is my favorite. Give yourself a hand. And okay. probably, you know, a couple of reasons, maybe because you finally like unleashed Ellen Reed, who I had on the show a couple of years ago. Um, and it's, it's a little trippy. So which, which is, which is really cool. Um, and it's also the last from BMG. So Ellen was saying that I was a very tumultuous, you know, experience making that album because it's a lot of input from the record company and, and stuff like that. Um, what was your experience making that album? Well, it was about what Ellen said. Um, on the one hand, it was a uh, it was a great experience because I was working with a guy named Greg Wells, right. who was was not yet the incredibly famous, well known producer that he is today. I met him at a songwriting camp and um, just fell in love with the guy's whole, you know, 
repertoire of abilities. And he's a lovely guy. Um, and writing with him was the first time I had really done a co-write project. Um, aside from the songwriting that I did at that uh, songwriting camp where I met him. And um, he, he's just an amazing co-writer, just amazing. Uh, and I was very happy with the material that he came up with. And I was very happy with the record. I think it's a really good record and it's one that I'm most, one that I'm very proud of. But the actual making of it, unfortunately, was marred by my A&R guy being absolutely nitpicky to the point of saying things like, you know, the bass comes in at bar 33 and it didn't on the last version. And we really think that you should take it out. And right. there's a cymbal crash on the top of the chorus that, you know, and it was just like, oh, my God, how do I <laughs> deal with this? on a daily basis, constant criticisms. And, um, you know, I won all the arguments in the end and the record sounds like I won. Right, right. What was the deciding factor in having Ellen sing the song? I decided that I wanted her to sing lead because I thought it would lend more depth to the album overall. Okay. I also thought it would be nice for people to have a change from my voice because I'm, I've got a very particular sounding voice. Right. And the only reason I can get away with it is because yeah. I've got Ellen singing with me. Right. And, you know, and she, you know, fantastic voice and those songs were great. Um, was it like strategic to do it like in the fourth album rather than the follow up to God's Shuffle of Defeat? Or was it something I'm you could just Okay, just because like the God Shuff Your Feet was such a great successful album and sold what five million mm -hmm. you know copies where the next one the change mm -hmm. have a different singer in there. Was the follow-up was that not like a, a plan to have her sing a couple songs in that one? You mean on Worm's Life? The third yeah. Album? Yeah. Just I, you know, it just hadn't occurred to me to get her okay. to sing. Gotcha. Right. Um the other thing too is that we were really taking a new direction on that fourth record. And so right. I thought that um, Ellen would work in the context of that direction. Okay. Yeah. Because uh, Get You in the Morning is like my favorite song on there. And she's, you know, absolutely fantastic.
Very mixed. Okay. Um, some people that didn't like us before liked us then. <laughs> right. That record. Uh, some people that liked us for our first record didn't like us so much for that record. And some people just liked what we do. Okay. All right. Yeah. So I'm, I'm in that camp. So I mean, it, it worked out. So I guess the people that didn't like it kind of evened out the people who actually liked it. Who didn't like you before so i guess i have no idea really <laughs> yeah right, whatever i mean yeah it was it was fine but with that one that was your last album bng and that was kind of a weird time with like the end of the 90s because like record sales kind of went down with napster you know starting right there so that's when you guys basically was, went independent right yes exactly we went perfect in timing when when, <laughs> the, when the industry went downhill and that was uh difficult it was very difficult yeah um i'm glad i don't have to navigate that anymore and that i'm just back on the road right but like now like i know you just released a new single we'll talk about that in a little bit sacred alphabet now what's like your goal now is it just to get the music out because you're you're creative it's not to make money anymore off these songs well um the reason i wrote that song there's two reasons one is i find joy in songwriting period right um, two, um, we were touring on the strength of our record having an anniversary. And you can only tour on the strength of that for the duration of the anniversary. Right. We had a couple of anniversaries. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it got to the point where it behooved me to write something so that people coming to our shows had something new to look forward to. Because we'd already played many of those places and we wanted to come back with some fresh material and i was a little bit worried that people wouldn't be familiar with the material and that it would be difficult to play it live and have it go over but it's been extremely well received i've been quite shocked um we get people calling out for it so some people are obviously familiar with it and um when we play it you know, I announced it as our first new song in 10 or 15 years, and people really settle down and listen very carefully. And um, it's a very quiet song, so if the crowd isn't into it, you're dead. In the beginning was not the word. Not yet, 
Just kind of riffing on that song because you brought it up. I, oh no, absolutely no. Because it's wandered from the point. I apologize. Oh no, no, it's fine. We'll talk about it now. It's like yeah, very. I like it. Very spooky, like very like reflective, like you know, mood revoke. It's it's like Gregorian chantish too. It's like it's all these you know different like pieces into one. And I guess my question is, why did it take so long for you to release a new song? Well, you know, one day in the. Uh, early aughts, my accountant called me and said, listen, you got to stop making records or you're going to go broke because I wasn't making any money on it. Right. And so I didn't, I, I, I did stop. I stopped writing. Okay. I stopped putting out records. I wasn't about to continue writing if I wasn't going to put it out. Right. So I just stopped doing that and I started doing other things. Um, so when I went back to writing, it was, be, it was initially out of necessity um for the reasons that i described above yeah. uh 
and it took me a little bit to get my uh, groove back on. You know, it was it was strange not writing songs for that long and then going back into the studio for the first time. Um, I was uh, I was not convinced that I was going to do as good a job as what I ended up doing. I, and it really kind of boosted my own ego to go through the process of writing and recording another song again after all these years. Right. Now, was this kind of like born out of the pandemic? No. Oh, yeah. Well, okay. So I wrote the lyrics before the pandemic. But as far as the music goes, it was constructed based on studies I began in the pandemic. Okay. I decided to go back to the drawing board and learn a new instrument. And I chose classical piano as my uh, goal. And I enjoyed the music so much that I got a composition teacher to work with me as well. So that I could understand what was going on in the music that I was playing. And he ended up teaching me a system called counterpoint, which is like the nuclear physics of music. It's <laughs> one of the hardest things to get your head around, as, as particularly as someone who's writing in a completely different vein, which is what I was doing up until I studied counterpoint. Counterpoint is a, a way of writing, it evolved as a way of writing for uh, sacred vocal music in the uh, 16th century or so. And um, the long and the short of it is my studies in counterpoint very much influenced the writing of the music for Sacred Alphabet. And the reason it, that it sounds like it does, and you, you had some good adjectives, um, is precisely because of that background. It was a completely different approach to anything I'd ever done before. Like I actually wrote that piano part note for note and I'd never done that before. I'd always just written the guitar parts and let Ellen play whatever she wanted because she could already play the piano. So that was a completely new thing for me. And it did grow out of the pandemic. Okay. So I'd imagine like now with technology of sending files, each band member did their own part, sent it back to you and then you, Yes, you're exactly right about that. Okay. That's what we did. Um, yeah. So, so what was their initial, like, response, reaction to, to your work before they put, did their parts? Did they like it? Yeah, they loved it. Okay. I was very fortunate because it was my first new song in a long time, and I wanted them to like it, and they did. It was regarded as a huge success by all who <laughs> contributed. So now that the song is out there, is this the route you're going to take now? Just releasing singles when they're done rather than trying to make it another full-length album and potentially lose money again? <laughs> yeah, well, that's, uh, you, uh, the way you outlined it, it sounds like that's my only sane, sane right. option. No. <laughs> uh, I, I think you're right, actually, to some yeah. extent. Um, to record an entire album would be expensive and time consuming because I'd want to do it a certain way that right. wouldn't be the cheapest possible way. Like I'd, I'd want to use real string players and that's wildly expensive. Yeah. Um, you know, mo- nobody uses real string players anymore. They, well, some, some people do, but most of the time it's just samples, you know? Yeah. 
Um, so, so yeah, I think probably releasing singles sort of on a quasi-annual basis is not a bad thing to do because I, I can afford it and I can manage the output. You know, like I, I have pretty high standards about what I want to do now. Right. You know, like I don't want to do anything I've done before and I, I want it to exist on a level that's hopefully higher than what I've done before, if that makes any sense. Um, and I think that that song lives up to that. And I want the songs that come after it to live up to that. And plus it keeps you like kind of relevant. Yeah. If you do one yeah. every couple months rather than at least 10 and once, and then, you know, you get a good week out of it and then goes into, you know, the Spotify stream, so to speak. And, you know, <laughs> so, that's exactly. Yeah. That's exactly right. Yeah. So does your like background, like in English lit, like philosophy kind of help you in your songwriting? Oh, absolutely. You know, I, I, I've joked about this before, but I did a double major in English literature and philosophy, and I was very, very engaged as a student. And um, reading poetry and philosophy was the best thing that ever happened to me as far as lyrics go, because the philosophy engaged my critical thinking and the Poetry taught me about how to write lyrics because lyrics is basically poetry, you know, uh, at least good lyrics are, yeah. I think. And I would point to guys like Leonard Cohen as examples of that. You know, I think he's, he's another guy with a literary background and a philosophical background. And I think it shows in his writing. Have you ever experienced like writer's block? Oh, yeah. yeah. Right now. <laughs> That's part of what's behind me not wanting to commit to a record is because I'm really flowing with ideas. Okay. Yeah. I'm, uh, I've, I've just completed the skeleton of the music for a lyric that I wrote. Okay. And I'm in the process of refining it. Right. So I am working on something, but I don't, the third song, you know, as it were, is not there yet at all. I don't, I have no idea, <laughs> sadly. Yeah. Do you kind of like ask for the band members to help? Do you like, bounce ideas off them? Do they give you input or any, any songs? Um, not with lyrics. Okay. With music, yes. But right. lyrics. our drummer in particular has producerial skills. Right. I, I take a lot of feedback from him. Okay. So I know, like, what God Shuffles, we talk about anniversaries. That's the 30th anniversary, I guess, this year, which is which is kind of crazy. Um, was it yeah. easy? Yeah. And I know you toured, what, for the 25th anniversary, right? So w was it easy to get the band back together this time to tour? Yeah, everybody was into it. You know, okay. we, we had a gig offered to us about five years ago by the... Winnipeg Symphony Orchestra. Okay. That was for enough money that everybody was quite willing to take a few days off and rehearse and do the show. Um, and we got such a great response and had such a good time doing it that we just decided to continue. And um, there was a certain nostalgia for the 90s in the air, and the, which there kind of is still. Um, and it made it possible for us to go back on, on, on the road for the first time since, you know, the early aughts. 
the nineties even. Yeah. And, um, very gratifying and very, uh, I feel very lucky. Now I know they have all those nostalgia tours where they have multiple acts go out together. Is something yes. that, is something that you've been asked to do or you, you just want to be on oh, your own? You know, occasionally we've played with other bands from the nineties right. uh, on bills like that. Um, and we're, we're not above taking on those kinds of shows. Not yeah. at all. I think they're fun. Um, but we, also do a lot of our own shows in theaters with our own um, opening acts, which right. have nothing to do with the 90s. And, okay. Yeah. So and, and, both. Yeah. I know Ellen released her solo album, you know, a few years back. Did she, did she ever open up for you guys and then just, you know, do double duty? <laughs> uh, no, she didn't open for us, but she did tour with her own band. Okay. Now, I, I know, like, you guys did a ton of videos, but she's, like, basically was the creative force behind them. She was, yeah. and she never got paid for it, which always pissed me off. She'd come up with these great concepts and then hand them off to some video director and the video director would get all the credit. Oh, that's it. You got you guys didn't fight for her to actually direct the videos, right? Or she just didn't have- uh, No, we didn't fight for that. And probably it would have been a bad hill to try and die on because- right. I don't think that was going to happen. Okay. I don't think Ellen even felt qualified to do that. Gotcha. Because a lot of the videos you have were, were fantastic. Did you enjoy making them? No, I hated every minute of it. <laughs> I was, I found it exhausting and dull. Okay. And um, it always took hours. Like they, then yeah. they'd be shoots start at absurdly early hours and go until the evening and you'd be doing so much sitting around in costume and full makeup, sweating your ass off. And uh, it wasn't fun at all. I didn't enjoy it one bit. Now, if you talk to Ellen, she seems to, she recalls oh, enjoying it. I think that she's somehow managing to filter out all the, <laughs> right. all the bad stuff that was going on during that time, because yeah. I don't recall them being, super happy circumstances but like after like watching them could you say oh, okay this is fine or you just shattered it as far as far as the the actual um, finished product <laughs> finished product goes yeah i was fine with that which one was your favorite to watch not actually to make obviously <laughs> um to it's oddly enough it's swimming in your ocean okay because it was so much fun to make and watch Right. I got uh, I got to do that scene with all those bubbles and uh, yeah, that would be the one. And I know you guys covered XCC's Ballad of Peter Pumpkinhead for the Dumb and Dumber a movie, and you know the video was great. Jeff Daniels was in it, running around. Is XCC like a big influence on you?
huge influence. I really love XTC's work from the beginning to the end. The first two records, which Andy Partridge himself, Andrew Partridge being yeah. the singer-songwriter for yeah. most of XTC, um, even concurs that he doesn't love the two re- first two records as much as the rest of them. He thinks that uh, Black Sea and Drums and Wires started to hit the mark. Right. But yeah, XTC, I'm a huge fan. And I was lucky enough to actually go and have lunch with Andy Partridge when I lived in uh, London. Oh, wow. Yeah, I, I, I kind of wish that they would start touring by now with you know his uh, issues. That's unfortunate. <laughs> yes. Yeah, he's he's absolutely against touring and will never do it again. Yeah, that's that's unfortunate. But yeah. I know you said in the past that you were like reluctant to sing, you know, because of your voice. Um, was there ever a time when you thought maybe Ellen would be the lead singer of the band? Ellen was always so good at harmonies that, uh, and also Ellen herself didn't want to be the lead singer. Right. As a matter of fact, when she first joined the band, she just played keyboards and was too shy to sing. Right. That's what she said. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I'd forgotten that until she told me recently and reminded me of it. So when you brought to her like the the three or four songs from Give Yourself a Hand, what was her like initial reaction to that? Oh, she thought they were great. Okay. She really enjoyed them. And and she was okay with singing lead on those and stuff? Oh yeah. She was uh very enthusiastic about it, in fact, I would say. Okay. I know that the video "Get You in the Morning" is is a great one too. The little psychic hotline and everything like that. It's uh, yeah, really good. Yeah. So when uh, came, you know came out and blew up, uh, you guys did the talk shows and stuff, right? The late night shows and yes, like that. Yeah. Um, what were your experiences with those? Oh, it was thrilling. I mean, first of all, we got on Saturday Night Live before right. we even got on Letterman. Right. So it kind of went backwards we started with the biggest show possible and then went back well not to say that those other shows weren't as big as snl but you know traditionally you kind of work your way up from the right to the top and we started at the top um i had a great time on the snl set adam sandler came and saw our sound check and imitated me (laughs) (laughs) And uh, did it very well, uh, which I found hilarious. Yeah. Um, I got to know Julia Sweeney a little bit, the woman who okay. plays Pat. Right. Um, she's a, quite a lovely person. She was a fan. We kind of connected. Um, and also um, Chris Farley, God rest his soul. Yeah. Um, he was a big Crash Systems fan, and when his manager – wanted to give him uh, a gift for being sober for a year. He offered to fly him to any show and see it. And Chris Farley chose to come and see us. Oh, wow. (laughs) Play a show in Boulder, Colorado. And he even did us the great honor of introducing the band in the character of the man who lived down by the river. In the van, the yeah. speaker, yeah, Matt Foley, Matt Foley, it? yeah, yeah, and because uh, it, it was interesting because Chris is a very shy person, oddly enough, and and he 
he was a little taken aback that we wanted to introduce him and wanted us to int- yeah. in- wanted him to introduce us. Right. And um, he he was like, well, what, what what character can I do it in? And I w- I immediately said Matt Foley because I I just loved that skit so much. Yeah. I remember watching Christina Applegate in one of those skits. Oh right, breakout. Yeah. And she. She was trying not to laugh and really not succeeding. Yeah. <laughs> no character for sure. Yeah. Not to, not to criticize Christine Applegate because I worship Christine Applegate. Of but, course. Yeah, we all did. Uh, anyways, I don't know how I got talking about Christine Applegate. What were we talking about anyways? Oh, no, just uh, you know, Chris Farley introducing yeah, you. Yeah. That's <laughs> so Chris Farley, yeah. So that, that was a tremendous, uh, tremendous night for us. We were so honored and pleased that he came did he ever t- tell you like his favorite song by you guys or um did he ever what did he ever like let you know his favorite song by you guys oh. no we didn't really talk in those terms right uh i don't even remember much of what i talked about with chris because he's so shy yeah that's uh, yeah that's a great story it's yeah it's still still a tragic loss that, you know. Yeah, it really is. Yeah, just terrible. Yeah. So, what was the reason why that song blew up? Once there was this kid who got into an accident and couldn't come to school. But when he finally came back His hair had turned from black into bright white He said that it was from when the cars had smashed so I 
and lurched all over the church floor. He couldn't quite explain it, they'd always just I mean, I'm kind of the worst guy to ask because it's my creation and what yeah. other people see in it is a, somewhat of a mystery to me. Right. Um, I think it was a combination of things. I think the lyrics were provocative and I think that my voice was provocative. Um, and I think it was a well-produced track yeah. where the band rose to the occasion. Has your relationship with the song changed over the years? Um, my relationship with the song is uh, is one of gratitude. Right. You know, like when I sing that song, I don't think, oh God, here we go again. I think yeah. I'm so glad that this song did well. And, you know, the other thing too is that uh, the crowd make it new for me every time. Because for them, it's... You know, it's a yeah. highlight, and uh, that elevates it. Oh, that's good. Yeah, because you probably have, you know, people seeing you for the first time in the theater, you know, in that show, so you want to make yes. it, obviously. Exactly. exactly. Experience. Yeah. yeah. Do you remember where you were the first time you heard one of your songs on the radio? Yes. I heard Superman's song in Canada. Tarzan wasn't a ladies' man. He'd just come along and scoop him up under his arm like that. Quick as a cat in the jungle. But Clark Kent, no, there was a real gent. He would not be caught sitting around in no jungle scheme Dumb as an ape doing nothing Superman never made any money Saving the world from Solomon Grundy Sometimes I despair The world will never see another man Like him Hey Bob Soup had a straight job Even though he could have smashed through any bank in the United States well, He had the strength But he would not Folks said his family were all dead. Planet crumbled, but Superman he forced himself to carry on. Forget Krypton and keep going. Superman never made 
Sometimes I despair the world will never see another man like him. Tarzan was king of the jungle and lord over all the apes, but he could hardly string together. I toss in Eugene. Sometimes when soup was stopping crimes, I'll bet that he was tempted to just quit and turn his back on them. Join Tarzan in the forest. But he stayed in the city, kept on changing clothes and dirty old phone booths till his work was through. Had nothing to do but go on home. Superman never made any money. And I was sitting in some little donut shop, and the song came on, and I wanted to jump up and say, "Hey, that's me," but I didn't. And um, I didn't know if I'd ever hear it again because it wasn't a hit at that time. Right. And then it was all over the airwaves. Yeah, because it, yeah, it got very little play here in the states. That's that's why very little. Yeah, notice. I think MTV might have played it like 120 minutes or something like that. But uh, yeah, all you know the the most impressive thing that I thought about the sales of that record were that we put it out in America and it it sold like. I don't know, 40,000 copies. And then by the time we were ready to put out our next record, it had sold 120,000 copies, hmm. which still isn't much as far as a record label is concerned, but right. it's held a lot more than its initial sales. So it had legs. And then, of course, it became uh, popular when people went back to listen to our older catalog after the after mm-hmm became such yeah. a problem. How did you guys get your record deal? And did you have like one in Canada and one in the States or was it just one? Started off in Canada and my manager got us our deal in the States. Okay. Um, Jeff Rogers. Right. And how did I get the record deal? Well, I'm, I made a demo tape of some original material and I sent it around various music festivals and um, it got into the hands of this uh, Richard Flowhill, uh, who was very enthusiastic about the record and recommended to many a record label that they check us out. And um, we had kind of a bidding war going on just based on the demo tape. Hmm. 
Um, and the demo tape was to, was something that I made with my tip money from bartending. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so did um yeah, did any of those songs from the demo tape make it on the first album? Oh yeah, uh, nearly all of them. Okay. Superman song, androgynous, bereft man song, and um, another one. I forget which one. And then there was a song called Fundies Never Have Fun on Sundays that we did not put on the record. Right. <laughs> That's fun. <laughs> Fundies being fundamentalists. Okay. <laughs> fundamentalists never have fun on Sundays. Yeah. Was, that, was that your decision or the record? Company? My decision. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> great guitar solo, but the lyrics were kind of corny. Gotcha. Is there what's the background behind um, jump back a little to the fourth album, Aching to Sneeze? I've been aching to sneeze, begging please, pretty please, but I can't get the thing to come out. I've been down on my knees, I've been pissing on trees, but the evil thing just won't come out. Come on out, my pretty baby. Relieve me of my burden, little baby. Come my pretty baby I've been waking at dawn with a big bird on and I can't make the thing go away I've been throwing up drinks in the toilets and sinks but it just sticks around anyway Pretty baby, relieve me of my burden, little baby. Come on, my pretty baby. I started to write Give Yourself a Hand, I, I began writing lyrics differently. In the past, I had made notes on things that I thought I could, on ideas I thought I could develop. Whereas with Give Yourself a Hand, I just sat down and tried to improvise whatever I could manage to rhyme without thinking too much about it. Okay. And um, all of those lyrics were strung together out of bits and pieces that I collaged together um, after having done a fairly thoroughgoing stream of consciousness session. And um, I would take good lines and, and good pairs of lines or a, a good chorus and just do cut and paste jobs until I manipulated things into such a, into a way that they, the narrative had some continuity. 
but it was uh, very much a process of collaging my own lyrics together. And um, that's how those songs came together. Okay. Does your mindset like change like writing songs for each album? Do you go in with a different like thought process? Or? Um, well, the first three records I wrote by myself. So they were all written, like I say, in this way where I would take notes on ideas I thought I could expand or I would write down a line that I thought I could work with. Um, and then the big difference came when I went to this uh, songwriting boot camp. Well, not, not boot camp, songwriting workshop, really. The, Carol King was there. We wrote a song together. Um, all kinds of, like, really top-of-the-heap uh, top songwriters were at this thing. And um, was, was that in England? Yeah, uh, no, in France. In France, okay. Because I had Maya Sharp on, and she, she was there. And she Ooh. talked about um, working with Carol King writing a song with her and Paul Carey. I've a lot of those. Yeah, okay. Um, and they're, they're, they're held at this castle in, the, yeah. in this rural part of France. And um, they're hosted by, uh, you know, the drummer for the police? Oh, so his brother, Miles Copeland, right? His brother, Miles Copeland, yeah. yes. Yeah hosts these things at, at this castle that he owns and he's got these recording studios and and what you do is that each day you get together with two other writers and you're responsible for coming up with a song in the afternoon and recording it in the evening right and by the time you're done five days later they uh you've got you've collaborated with you know two other people every day so that's 10 other people and you've written five songs and um you know, you have to do it in a pretty efficiently because you've only got, you know, a handful of hours to do it. And that really changed the way I approached writing because co-writing became an option for me. I didn't think that it would be useful to co-write before that. <laughs> I was just too into my own thing. Right. <laughs> consider collaborating with others. But that changed me quite a bit. Okay. Who did you write with during that session? You know, uh, people I wrote with in that session included Carol King, Greg Wells, okay. uh, Louise Goffin. Um, oh, I would have to go back and look. Right. Okay. Those are the people that I remember off the top of my head. That was like, you know, 20 years ago or something. Right. Yeah. So, uh, hey, everyone check out sacred alphabet fantastic new single uh brad this was fantastic i really appreciate your time thank you and thanks for all the good questions and a special thanks to brad for joining me today check out their website crashtestdummies.com you can follow them on twitter at ctdsband and if you have a guest suggestion you can hit me up on twitter at the first noel one nine or like the page will be my youth on Facebook. You can go to iTunes, check out all the past episodes. While you're there, please rate and review the show. Don't have iTunes? Not a problem. Check will be found on SoundCloud, Spotify, Podbean, Amazon Music, basically, wherever you can find a podcast. A new episode comes every week. Stay safe, everybody. We'll see you then. <laughs>